0: It is true that nighttime devours the day. It is doubly true that every morning the sun returns to. Hello and welcome to "Asked and Answered Revision Legals" podcast that provides legal tips, insight, and answers for people and businesses that make a living online. Uh, it's another Friday, and I'm joined by my partner John DiGiacomo.
1: Happy Friday! I am wearing a suit today, which is really yeah unusual. I'm in court, so. No jeans and t-shirt, though it's uh, jeans and t-shirt weather here. It's actually pretty beautiful. It looks like summer has arrived, which is awesome.
0: Yeah, and I forgot to introduce myself. I am Eric Mysterovich. I am wearing jeans and a button-down and a hat right now. I've got my Brewery Vivant hat on, rocking it.
1: Yeah, I saw the uh, Wallonia uh, Rooster. I thought that's what it was.
0: Yeah, exactly. I love it. I wear it all the time. You get a lot of compliments on it. Brewery Vivant's uh, a great brewery in Grand Rapids, um, and they are very smart about the, how they handle their trademarks.
1: Yeah, which is a good subject, really how to pick a name, because when you're a company like Brewery Vivant, or really any company for that matter, uh, picking a name is one of the more important things that you can do in your business.
0: Exactly, and yeah, today's episode will all be centered around how to pick a name, how to pick a name that can be protected, how to protect that name not only in trademark sense but in a domain setting, and um, things to think about when you're kicking around those ideas. It is, it's a tough process to name a product. Uh, I, I was just thinking about naming a baby. In um, the process that goes into that. And it's a lot of the same things come up when you're trying to name a business or, or a product or a service. You're assigning this arbitrary name to a thing and you want that to fit and you don't really know how it's all going to come together. And there's so many options and you just kind of rack your brain thinking about this stuff and making lists and crossing things out. And hopefully this episode will provide you some way to kind of narrow that list and to think about uh, only include names that are going to be protectable uh, in the long run.
1: Yeah, my uh, I, it's a really good point. We want to make life easier for you. Um, so other than having to think about, uh, am I going to get made fun of for this name, which is a, kind of one of the primary considerations when you're naming a kid, which is exactly. why my name is John and not Rocco, as my My uh, mom had um, some say in the matter because my dad wanted to name me Rocco. Um, We're here to kind of steer you in the right direction to not only help you pick out a good name, but also pick out a name that really helps you keep the goodwill in your business through trademark protection.
0: Yeah, if you're going to go through all of this trouble to build something and spend all of these hours and and sweat building a business, building a product or service... um, you want to be able to protect your name and so many times we get calls from people after the fact you know they've been doing it two years and they call and say hey I want to get a trademark and we tell them all the problems um maybe it's a problem just well maybe you won't obtain a registered trademark right now that's that's a problem but it's on the smaller scale you could run into a problem where you're kind of infringing on someone else's trademark. And now you're really running a risk of uh, potential
1: litigation over this. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the biggest problem is that um, it's very expensive to rebrand. So this process, though, it's painful for a lot of people, and a lot of times they lose their favored names because they come to us and say, hey, is this clear? Hey, can I register this as a trademark? And then we have to tell them, sorry, no, it's not clear, and no, you can't register it, um, that process, it's important and it's cheaper at the outset than it is to rebrand in the future. Rebranding in the future is a, a vastly expensive uh, proposition.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's just such a headache. A good example of this is if you listen to the, uh, the startup podcast, uh, they went through a name. There's one episode about how they picked their name. And it was really funny to hear just the struggles that these guys were going through trying to pick a name for essentially a podcast broadcasting company. And they ran into a bunch of trademark issues and had their favorite names kind of rejected by their attorneys. Um, and they eventually came up with a, a pretty unique name. Uh, but it's an interesting process. If you're going through that or starting a business, you should really listen to that startup podcast. It's, a, it's pretty entertaining.
1: Yeah, I haven't heard that yet. I'll have to check that out this weekend.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely worth a listen. So, let's get into how to pick a name. Um, before before we start, though, I do want to tell everybody we have a trademark ebook now uh, will be available on the website by the time you're listening to this podcast. Um, it's free. You join our mailing list, you get this ebook that you can save and kind of use as a reference for trademark issues that come up along the way. Um, it's kind of a handy guide that should answer some of your basic questions about trademarks, about how they're used, how they're protected. Um, and maybe we'll save you some time instead of searching around the internet to try to answer your question. Hopefully you will have a book that you can turn to. So go to revisionlegal.com, download that free ebook, and then you'll also get our, uh, we'll send out weekly newsletters, um, and kind of give you some more tips and advice on um, things that we think are important for people that make a living online. Um, so getting right into it, um, you know, branding. We, we've talked about how important it is, how hard it is to pick a name, but I think we're also, we also know this idea of branding is just ubiquitous now. It's everywhere. Everyone has a personal brand.
1: Yeah, they really do, and a brand's important. Uh, Without a brand, I guess I'm going to get really philosophical, because that's what I do. Branding is important because of a psychological concept called lowering cognitive search costs. So with distinctive brands, the ability for the consumer to recall that good or service, that product that they're looking for, is easier. It's just easier for them to find you, and that's really what it's all about. I mean, people like to interact with brands as well. They also like to kind of feel, there's a, I guess there's a, a very emotional response to a brand is what I'm trying to say. And that plays into the, the goodwill calculus as well. So it's important to select a mark that um, from a legal perspective is protectable, but also from a, a, a really practical perspective um, serves the purposes that you want it to serve when you're creating that brand.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's exactly right. You want people to be able to recall that. You want um it to be kind of second nature to to link your your brand with your good or service and it's it's a difficult thing to do, but that brand identity is usually established not just by the company name or slogan or logo, but an overall impression of the business. Um, and I think the, the trademark, the, the parts of that overall impression are the trademark aspects of this, but you know, it goes into everything of how you build your brand, the type of copy you put on your website, you know, the kind of, we're seeing the kind of more playful language used almost everywhere now, you know, what was once kind of, um, only almost like a MailChimp type of way of talking to its consumers is now used by almost everyone. Um, And that goes into the brand and your logo and your trademark and all of that kind of ties together to form this impression. And like I said, at the heart of it is this trademark, this mark of your business. And, you know, these trademarks are... Everything you're working for, for your business, are embodied in this mark, and most people don't understand the very basic uh, ways trademarks are analyzed. And, and why would you, unless you went to law school,
1: right? Um,
0: you know, so so there's there's certain levels of strength associated with marks, right?
1: Yeah, I mean it's basically a, a scale, and think of a, a rope. Uh, tied across two points, and at one end of that rope are generic names, and those are names that point to a specific class of goods or services. So, for example, smartphone is a generic term that points to a class of goods, which are smartphones. Those are not capable of achieving trademark registration. You've got next to those descriptive trademarks that are trademarks that directly describe the goods or services or characteristic of the goods or services sold under the trademark. So, for example, uh, if you're selling apple pie and you name your pie apple pie, it's descriptive. It basically is describing a quality or characteristic of that pie. Um, Good example as well as apple pie for candles. Um, When you use apple pie in association with candles, that's also descriptive because the candles likely have an apple pie scent.
0: Yeah, this is, I mean, I think the descriptive... The fact that descriptive marks are weak from a trademark view is maybe not apparent to most people because a lot of people want to pick a name that describes what they do to their potential customers. So when they look at that name... They don't have to think about anything. They don't have to make a connection. It just says apple pie candles.
1: Right, and the biggest problem is that apple pie candles doesn't point to you. It points to the candle. So another reason why we don't allow or we make it difficult to allow registration of descriptive trademarks is basically a free speech issue. It's that we don't want to pull these kind of common terms out of the daily usage and create a limited monopoly around them. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. And and it makes sense when you think about it that way. But it is one of those things where I think a lot of people make their first call of, what are we going to name this business? Well, we're going to include what we do in the business name. And there's ways of doing that without exactly describing
1: the good itself. Yeah, and that's the suggestive mark, the elusive suggestive mark. (laughs) I always say elusive because... Uh, what is it? Well, no one really knows. This is the the line where we lawyers like to argue. So suggestive marks are intended to indicate the nature, quality, or characteristic of the goods or services that are offered under that mark. Um, an example that I always use is the term greyhound because it, the, the term greyhound is suggestive of bus services because it requires an extra uh, step in the, the thinking process to equate Greyhound with the speed of that bus service. So suggestive marks have that extra cognitive step. And again, I say we like to argue over this because, you know, extra cognitive step, what does that mean? That's really a question. What does it mean? And that's why yeah. suggestive marks are difficult to identify.
0: Yeah, but it's certainly different than speedy bus
1: service. Yeah, it's almost intuitively know. different. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, you know, speedy bus service would certainly describe exactly what you're providing instead of the... the. The source of those goods or services, I think Greyhounds is a great example of that because it does call that characteristic out, but it's, it's not the same as, as the next level of stronger mark, which is an arbitrary mark. Um, and these arbitrary marks are when you use a, a common term in association with goods that are dissimilar for that term. So Apple to sell computers. Amazon to sell books. You know, these are common words that have absolutely no suggestive nature as to the underlying good or service. And while that may sound strange from a business naming standpoint, it's really strong from a trademark standpoint.
1: Yeah, all the best brands are typically arbitrary or what we call fanciful marks. And that's exactly why. It's because when you build uh, goodwill into that brand, the, the this magical thing happens. The signal to noise ratio drops. So all of a sudden, you know, Apple becomes Apple. It's not, uh, you know, Microprocessing Computer Corporation. It's Apple. You know Apple. Everyone knows Apple. Same with Amazon. This little magical thing happens where, you know, people arrange around the brand because. There is no association, and these brands are able to rise to the top of the uh, of the commercial market because there's nothing else like them.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in the, in the highest level of uh, trademark strength is kind of one step removed from this arbitrary mark is the fanciful mark, which is just a made-up word, essentially. Um, a common example of this is always Kodak, um, which is now becoming a little bit of an outdated reference. <laughs> I don't know if Kodak <laughs> is even in business anymore. I, don't either. I was just thinking of this. We, we use a service called Trello. I think that's a made-up word, T-R-E-L-L-O. It's a project management system. Made-up words. These are the strongest possible marks you can have. And while it may be a little bit more difficult to, to first announce that as a brand name uh, from your kind of internal thinking, you should be certainly looking to fall into the fanciful or arbitrary mark cat- category when coming up with a name. So when, when you're kicking around these ideas and you have this long list, cross out anything that is descriptive or generic, Suggest- suggestive is okay but arbitrary, fanciful are really where you want to fall into.
1: Yeah, if possible, definitely. You can get a trademark for a descriptive trademark, but the problem is that it takes well, it's presumed to take five years. So in order to get trademark protection in a descriptive trademark, you have to acquire what's called secondary meaning, which means that the average person comes to see that descriptive term as being exclusively associated with you. That takes a long time. And it might not take five years. It might take 10 years. So it's easier at the outset to pick one of these more distinctive trademark types, suggestive, arbitrary, or fanciful, um, to not only protect your brand, to get trademark registration, but also to make sure that consumers get to you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point about the secondary meaning. If if you're listening to this and you have a business and, and you're concerned that it falls within this descriptive category, it doesn't mean you can never obtain a trademark a registration. Like John said, it just it's going to take longer because you have to establish the secondary meaning. And it's kind of a complex question of when is when do you have secondary meaning? How do you establish it? There's no one answer to that. It it can be complex, but you have to use it for at least five years, like you said. And so if, if you're sitting there wondering, oh, did I already mess this up? The answer is probably no, probably not. You can, you can probably still obtain a registration, just maybe not right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Always talk to an attorney about these types of things, but it's, it's likely that you've chosen a pretty decent name. And you know if you've used it for long enough, there's a possibility that you'll be able to obtain trademark registration. And frankly, if you don't know, then you should contact an attorney because you might be facing some kind of hidden liability for trademark infringement. And if you can catch that before it becomes an actual problem, then you can really mitigate your risk and kind of figure out an exit plan, which is really, it's a lot better than getting sued, obviously. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, you know, trademark infringement is... You may think that is something that's reserved for big companies to fight about. It's not you know picking these names and is in a, avoiding trademark infringement is should be near the top of your list in factors when, when deciding a name because it can happen to anyone, it's expensive. Why don't you just cut that step out by, by being proactive and not having to worry about oh someone's going to come writing me a cease and desist letter sometime uh, because I I didn't look into this issue. Um, definitely something to, to think about it and really not ignore no matter what size business um, you are.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's good for us, it's bad for, for businesses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so,
0: So we've kind of gone over... Okay, here are here's the general overview of marks that are how they're weighed according to trademark law. You know, we have this scale of descriptive bad, fanciful good. Okay. Now, there's other factors that trademark law has uh, in place that can help you narrow this list. And specifically, there's a section of the Lanham Act that says what things Uh, what marks are are not capable of being registered.
1: Yeah, there's a couple of categories of marks that are not capable of being registered, um, and there are some that just serve to be kind of bad marks. Laudatory terms, for example, tend to be, you know, they might be registerable, but they tend to be bad marks. Uh, Laudatory term is kind of a, um, I don't know, a puffery term, like uh, super or exquisite, or something along those lines. Those tend to be uh, considered descriptive, and they tend to be bad marks or bad components of marks. Um, Another one is surnames, so like last names. Last names tend to be pretty bad because we don't want to preclude people from uh, registering or using their own last names. And there's a lot of little areas that kind of play into the surname selection. You've you've done a little bit of work in this area recently. Do you want to discuss that? Yeah,
0: definitely. The surname issue... You know, if, if you're not describing the good or product itself, I think the next most common name is to include your last name. Uh, and, again, that's maybe good for you to try to connect and build a brand in your head, but it's, it's probably bad from a trademark standpoint. Trademark law says uh, marks that are uh, merely a surname are not cannot be registered. Um, and this kind of falls into the same grounds of the descriptive uh, mark, meaning they, they can be registered after they obtain secondary meaning, but they're not going to be able to be registered initially. And so it's probably best to avoid it, if at all possible. And there's a bunch of factors that go into this analysis. Is it, quote, merely a surname? Is it connected with other words? Uh, what are those other words? If those other words are are not, re- if those other words are descriptive or generic, then the mark as a whole is really weak. If those other words are maybe fanciful or arbitrary. Well, then it becomes a little stronger. Uh, there's questions about how popular is that surname. Um, is it truly a surname that a lot of people have? If it's a relatively rare surname, then There are exceptions exist, and you may be able to get by and achieve registration. There's also questions of, does that surname have any other meanings? Um, A lot of last names may fall into that category where it actually has some type of other meaning. Um, So these are all kind of factors that make this element a little messy.
1: So what you're saying basically is that I've got a chance to register my last name as my rap name, but... Really, I should stick to DJ sanctions. <laughs> yes. that's He took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> I mean, there are other categories, too. So geographic terms, terrible, I think. Um, yeah. Mostly because they'll be refused for geographic descriptiveness. We've got a, um, a client locally who used a local name for the region and then tied that to a descriptive term that describes their services. I don't want to say who they are because they might not be happy about the way that I'm discussing their mark, but um, it's going to take them a very long period of time to get trademark registration because they chose this geographically descriptive term and then they combined it with a descriptive term, which ultimately makes it a a less distinctive mark. Yeah, yeah, so I
0: think, you know, the, again, I think this is a really, really common way for people to come up with a name. You know, they, they want to describe the goods, they want to put their last name in it, or you want to put in the location, and all three of those are terrible from a trademark standpoint. You can maybe protect all of those at some point down the road, but if, if you're looking to come up with a, a great name in a trademark setting, avoid all three of those. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and... And there's other ones, I think, that are a little less common, um, immoral or deceptive material. This is in the news right now because of the Washington Redskins issue.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I wonder how that will play out because immoral and deceptive is so rarely used now as a means to reject a mark. Um, It's almost like it kind of fell by the wayside for a while. And with this Redskins issue... I kind of wonder how they'll treat it because immoral and deceptive, both of those terms kind of tend to change over time. So it's interesting mm. to see how this will play out.
0: Yeah, exactly. And,
1: and who is who's considering,
0: who's determining what's immoral? Yeah, And who's, you know, are you, I suppose the, the TTAB or the courts would be looking at the, the purchasing public as to their common belief of what's immoral. I mean, coming up with the answer to that is something... I wouldn't want to be involved in because that's that's incredibly difficult. But uh, this is one where I think if you probably if you're towing the line here um, and you're a little concerned whether or not it's immoral, you might want to think about something else just to avoid the problem.
1: Yeah. And I think the only other area where we're seeing more of this type of rejection is in uh, marijuana based marks or marijuana based applications. It's they're probably not going to be refused on an immoral basis, but they'll probably be refused based on what's called an unlawful use in commerce, because marijuana is obviously still illegal under federal law. But this area clearly is going to develop more. It's, it's just kind of an interesting time to be a trademark lawyer for sure.
0: Yeah, and you know one I one other area that I just thought of that uh, you know I didn't put in our show notes today or outline today was a doctrine that comes up with uh, the doctrine of foreign equivalence. Yeah. Um, this one is another one where people want to use a different language um, for a mark. So a lot of times they maybe want to use a Latin term or uh, you know, a Spanish term or some different way of saying um, what may be a common saying. They think they're going to set it apart, make it distinctive by using a different language. And that may not work because the trademark office will essentially translate that term into its English equivalent and see if there's already a mark registered.
1: Yeah. Or they'll refuse based on descriptiveness or, you know, any of the other traditional uh, refusal bases, bases, excuse me. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, another one that's interesting is always flags and coats of arms. Um, you don't see too many of these, but the USPTO uh, says basically that you can't register flags or coats of arms. But that that's a pretty limited class of of items. For example, we've seen trademark registrations for the Statue of Liberty, the um, you know some derivations of state flags. But the USPTO here is really looking out for any kind of registrations that contain national flags, uh, things like you know the the rising sun of Japan, for example, they'll likely reject the trademark containing that element. Um, it really depends. It's, it's a tough, tough call, but it's another basis for rejection that's kind of interesting.
0: Yep, certainly something to stay away from, uh, from a design perspective. Just, you know, anything, if you're thinking about you know, using some kind of flag, uh, that should be, should be a red flag for you to yeah. maybe stay away from because it, it might not be protectable. Um, names of living persons, this is a, another one that comes up on a somewhat regular basis. Can be registered as long as you have that person's consent. Uh, you know, if you're trying to use the name of someone particularly famous, um, then you're going to run into issues. Um, and this is a little confusing because of the difference between surname and name of a living person. but. You can register names of living persons as long as you have their consent, but you're not going to be able to try to make some kind of connection to someone that doesn't want to be connected to you.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a prohibition on a false suggestion of a connection, and there's also, you know, common law prohibitions on that type of thing as well under the right of publicity. Exactly. Exactly.
0: The big one, though, the big <laughs> problem with picking a name and the one that we get the most questions about is the likelihood of confusion. And this is the one where you say, well, is this too, is my mark too close to their mark? You know, and this is a very common question. Most people run into it at some point along the way, and it's a very complex question. It's not easily answered. So I think what we're going to do is answer this one kind of in connection with what we think your next step should be in naming a business. Yeah,
1: that's a good call.
0: And just to recap, how are you going to name your business? How are you going to narrow down this list of names? Well, you're going to compare that list to the strength of trademarks, and you're going to avoid descriptive terms. You're going to avoid generic terms, and you're going to try to find suggestive, arbitrary, or fanciful terms. You're going to make sure you're avoiding laudatory terms, surnames, geographic descriptiveness, immoral material, flags, names of living persons without their consent, uh, foreign equivalents um, in different languages. You're going to maybe try to avoid these things. Uh, Next thing you do when you kind of narrowed down this list is you can search the United States Patent and Trademark Office's database, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's called the TESS database, T-E-S-S, and here you will be able to find all of the registered and and expired marks on record. So if you want to figure out, does someone else have, I've narrowed my list to these three names. Let's figure out if someone else has them. This is where you go. This is where you go to figure that out. And you type that into the test database, you type in your mark, and it's going to give you its results and it will tell you if there's anything that contains those marks. But this is not exactly cut and dry because. No, not even close. (laughs) There may be, uh, maybe you spell your mark with. Two S's, but someone else uses an X at the end. Or maybe you have, you type in the mark you want in association with, say, software as a service, and someone else has the exact same mark for a restaurant.
1: Or software as a good, which are two different international classes. You're not even going to hit on the same.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it, searching the test database, you can certainly get an idea of what's out there. Unless you hire an attorney, you're probably not going to get a comprehensive view of what's out there, but it, it's certainly a good thing that you can do to start. And why don't we, you mentioned that, that term international class. When, we're, when people are looking through these test database, they're going to see marks and they're going to see that they're associated with this, this IC number. Why don't you help us understand what what that is?
1: Sure, an international class is a class or of goods. That sounds like a dictionary. An international class. An international <laughs> class is a class of goods or services uh, that a trademark is registered in association with. Trademarks are registered in association with some class of goods or services. So the you know the first section, I think it goes until thirty-one or thirty-two. I can't remember, but the first few numbers are goods, and then the last are service categories. So when you're doing a trademark search, it's important to kind of not only do a broad search, but also do a class-based search. These classes are standardized, somewhat standardized. Um, they're also standardized across uh, multiple nations under the uh, the NICE, I think that's how you say it, treaty. So you have these NICE classes that um, are kind of the same, and through the World Intellectual Property Organization, they kind of cover the same goods or services, you know, with some exceptions. Um, but the general idea is when you register a trademark, you register it in association with something, and this is a really good way to to categorize it. Now, there's classes that are predefined for you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Those are listed in a manual called the uh, Trademark Acceptable, excuse me, Acceptable Goods and Services Manual, or you can make a freeform uh, class if you understand how those classes work. So if if your good or service is not contained within that manual, you can basically make up a new class to, uh, you know, to register your trademark under.
0: Yeah, and if, if you're to the point where you're registering for trademark, uh, you're applying for trademark registration, and you're not finding a class that fits your goods or services, Probably time to call an attorney.
1: Yeah, well, even before then, but yeah, definitely a time to call an attorney.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you're going to go out and try to do this on your own, you certainly can, but this can get a little confusing. It's complex, and it's really important because this is going to be the goods associated with your mark for forever under this mark. So you want to get it right, and you want to get the right balance of being uh, describing the goods uh, narrowly enough um to pick a, a specific good or service but also to kind of at the same time make it a little bit broader to cover more um you want you kind of it's this balancing thing that you you want it to be narrow and broad at the same time it's difficult if you have to write it yourself it's money well spent to hire an attorney to do it
1: Absolutely, and, and it's money well spent to hire an attorney because when the examining attorney on the other side, who is also an attorney, reviews your application, his or her sole job is to uh, typically to reject the application, to find a reason to reject the application. So you're nine times out of 10, you're probably going to get some kind of office action. Actually, it's probably not that high, but it's, it's pretty close. Um, you're going to get an office action, and that office action is going to reject the Application. So then you have to submit some reason to overcome that rejection. The most common rejection um, that poses the most difficulty is a likelihood of confusion rejection, which we discussed before. And when you analyze likelihood of confusion, there's really kind of nine factors that the examining attorney looks at. Those are all factors that have their own kind of factual circumstances. And, you know, if you're not an attorney, you're probably not going to be able to respond accurately or substantively to those types of rejections.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you are searching through the database and you see marks that are close to your mark in terms of spelling, uh, close to your mark in terms of the addition or omission of an extra word, uh, the same mark or similar mark, but in a different international class. These are all times when the likelihood of confusion issue is triggered and you're going to probably need some help to get around it. Um, just because the goods are not in the same international class doesn't mean there's a, there can still be a likelihood of confusion. Um, so the international class isn't a, a, the only question that needs to be answered. It's, it's one of the elements that kind of goes into the test but this likelihood of confusion is, is an important part of this because if you start to use this mark, even if you don't register it, and there is a, another registered mark out there, you're opening yourself up to trademark infringement. Absolutely. And, and, and this is the big one you want to avoid here is trying to, to, to be, reduce the risk possible. And, and if you're close to someone else's mark, you either need to have an attorney provide you with a name clearance opinion on that, or you need to pick a different mark.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important to stress. Look, our audience is sophisticated. Our clients are sophisticated. They're all typically tech companies or you know related. Um, you know, they're they're smart people, and we realize that the trademark market has been disrupted and that attorneys have been replaced by form filing services. And that's great. We don't, we don't have a problem with that. When we have a problem is when those types of services create almost impossible work to solve. And that's really the issue. It's that I'd be glad to have you hire me after you tried to file your trademark through LegalZoom, because I'm going to have to clean up the mess and it's going to cost you a lot of money. It makes my life great because I make a a bunch of money off of you. That's not a good thing. I'd like to make a bunch of money off of you, but I'd rather have you have a successful business and then come back to us. So hiring an attorney at the outset to do these types of things is smarter. It's it's It seems like it's better to be cheap, but this is an area where it's not good to be cheap. And I, I don't say that because I care about doing $295 trademark filings. I, I don't want to mess with $295 trademark filings, but you don't want to mess with those either.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no doubt if you're looking for a service to help you register a trademark, you're going to find one for cheap. And the cheapest route is not always the best route. Um, they're going to provide very limited services, typically, and they're certainly not going to counsel you along the way, uh, which I think is what you need because a lot of times these things are back and forth. So we need to understand what's important to your company. You know, how much do you have invested in this? Um, how important is this mark to you? And then we can kind of weigh that in the risk analysis to kind of give you an idea of everything you should be thinking about. Um, sometimes, you know, we can we can say, well, you know, there there is risk, but it's relatively low. You are very invested in this mark. And, you know... Because of that, if if you're going to proceed, you just need to know that you have this, this risk that's out there. But it's not the worst risk in the world. And there's other times where, say, you're walking into a firestorm if you use this mark. Um, and I don't care what you have protected or invested, you're not going to be able to use this mark. We can also reach out to the other. Uh, other trademarks out there and try to enter into some concurrent use agreements where essentially both parties agree to use a similar mark under defined limits uh, as to how they will be used in association with what products they will be used. So all of these things are are just services and counseling that... um, a mass warehouse of trademark filings just likely will not provide.
1: Yeah, and another really important uh, point is that a mass warehouse of trademark filings is not going to provide you with a reasonable clearance opinion that's based on you know, something that's going to hold up in a infringement lawsuit to support an innocent infringement defense. A clearance opinion that's well-drafted, that's well-thought-out, that's done by an attorney is going to provide you with the ability to at least point back to that opinion if you want to later claim that you didn't willfully infringe someone else's mark. Really, really helpful tool in litigation. These types of form filing services aren't going to provide you with that type of opinion, or at least not not that I've seen so far. Um, And they're not going to represent you in litigation. They're they're not going to know what to do. You're not going to want to work with them. It's just not a time to be cheap, as I said before.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So so let's recap where we're at. We have these trademark strength scale. I think we've been over that. You know what's strong. You know what's weak. We have these specific marks to avoid being surnames and uh, geographic names and laudatory terms and things like that. We talked about the test database and how you can go through that and find whether similar marks have been registered and we've touched on this idea of, is there a likelihood of confusion between two marks? You know, again, if you, if you find yourself asking, well, is there a likelihood of confusion between these two marks? Then it's time to call an attorney. Uh, because if, if you're asking it, then it should be, you should get a real answer to it um and that's the I think those are our kind that 's our kind of our overview of the steps we think are important to to pick this name or at least help you narrow down that list of names that can be protected and when you 've decided on that name and you want to move forward with protecting it that 's when you apply for trademark registration as John said you get what you pay for um and you know we we are certainly looking to form uh we think a, a lasting relationship with clients and understanding their needs is 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 important uh and is beneficial to everyone um, but that that trademark registration is an important step no matter who you use to 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 get that uh because trademark registration brings a number of specific benefits um you know, I always think the most important benefit is that nationwide priority to use your mark.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: The uh, if you don't have a registered trademark, you you only can use your mark where you are using it. And if that sounds confusing, and you're wondering where you're using your mark, that's the problem with not having a registered mark because it's going to lead to a messy fight at some point down the road if there's ever a claim of infringement. So you get the registered trademark, you lock out the competition on a nationwide scale from using your mark in connection with your goods or services is an extremely valuable intellectual property asset. The the mark a a small mom and pop store owns has the same amount of power as a, a big corporation's mark. And, you know, owning that is an asset uh, granted to, to you by the government, and it's really it is really worth something. It's a piece of paper, but it's worth it can be worth a lot of money if if your business goes the way you hope it does.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, another important thing to think about is uh, domain names. Using a yes. trademark in a domain name, and it's something that we do pretty frequently. Um, it's almost as difficult as picking a trademark or picking a a, a product name you're kind of running out of space now. So the selection of a domain name should probably factor into that analysis, don't you think? Certainly,
0: yes. Yeah, you're right. You probably should, one of these steps after you kind of get into this test database and narrow it down, what domain names can I get that are contain my mark or are close to my mark? Yeah, you're right. Domain names are running out. And it's important to, to pick one that you want to be your face because, um, you know, everyone does business online, especially the people that are listening to this. You make a living online. Your domain is of utmost importance, and you need to have one that you can protect and not uh, infringe on anyone else's mark Uh, because if you do that, you could run into issues that uh, could cause you to lose that domain, And, and that's what these whole domain disputes are about. Uh, these are typically done in ar- arbitration proceedings called UDRP proceedings. Uh, it's is essentially a, a mini lawsuit about who should own a domain name. You don't want to be in these. You want to avoid them, especially when you're just starting out to, to with a business. You you don't want this problem.
1: No, you definitely don't. And then there's even worse problem, which is a lawsuit. There's a, a federal statute called the Anti Cyber Squatting Consumer Protection Act. Which basically says that if somebody um, uh, registers a bad, uh, excuse me, registers a domain name with a bad faith intent to profit, um, that's identical or confusingly similar to a domain, or excuse me, to a mark in which somebody has rights, that the mark owner can seek up to a hundred thousand dollars per domain name. So there's a real big stick that people can hit you with if you don't choose the right domain name, if you don't get a trademark clearance. Um, and it can cause a lot of problems for businesses. We litigate a lot of these ACPA cases. So it's important to factor in these domain name uh, issues in your analysis. And there's a really great site, um, and and I've met the owners before. Um, It's called Domain Tools. We use it on a pretty regular basis. Through Domain Tools, you can really find out a lot about a domain name. You can find out the owner. If you find out the owner, you can... Um, buy the domain or make an offer to buy the domain from that person if you think that it's going to fit your business name. Uh, you can check to see whether or not there are people who are trying to uh, use typographical errors to siphon off traffic from your domain name. Just a whole set of tools that are incredibly valuable. So definitely check them out as you go through this analysis. But uh, yeah, definitely keep keep domain names in mind when you're going through this process.
0: Yeah, yeah it's an important part of it. I think everyone understands that, but you may not understand the, the implications that could come from picking a domain name that contains someone else's mark. It, it's really a problem, and it's a, certainly a reason to, a, if you have this likelihood of confusion uh, issue coming up, it, it's time to get some help because it, it can really, really be a problem. Um I hope that helped. I, I think we provided some, some decent help on how to pick a name. It's, it's a hard thing to do uh, to finally come up with the one that fits. But I think if you keep these rules in mind, we'll help you narrow down that list.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, again, always contact an attorney, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but understand how to do this stuff so you save yourself money over the long run. We want to see successful businesses, and we don't want to – we don't want to interact with you when you're distraught. We want to interact with you at the outset. We want to interact with you when you're excited about what you do because yeah. that's when we're at our best. That's when you're at your best. So take these comments to heart and make sure you kind of understand this process before you get into it. And go to our website, download the trademark ebook. Eric spent a bunch of time on it. I can't lay claim to it. Um, I, I, I'm just been lazy lately. So I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> you writing that
0: no i think it's I think it's useful. I think it's helpful i think uh people like i said revisionlegal.com, dot com download the ebook uh just give us your your email address. We're not going to overload you. we're going to give you uh a little bit of information every week about things we think are important or things and issues that are coming across our desks and um yeah. yeah, it's something it's a tool to hang on to to refer back to if if any questions come up. It talks about everything we talked about today and more. Uh, If you have any questions that that you'd like us to address on Asked and Answered, feel free to email us at contact at revisionlegal.com. And uh, until next week, I think we'll leave it here.
1: Yeah, this is uh, DJ Sanctions signing off. (laughs) (laughs) All right,
0: everyone, have a good weekend.
1: And so, There came a point in our evolution when we didn't guide life by distrusting our instincts and had to think about it and had to purposely arrange and discipline and push our lives around in accordance with foresight and words and systems of symbols, accountancy